Hello, and welcome to a spicy episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your Cinemechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana, and we have a special edition episode this week. We are reviewing 2021's Dune. This will be outside of one of our normal trilogy settings, so um, we were both very excited about this movie. We're just coming off of the socially obligated Halloween trilogy, so we thought we would just do a one-off here. Um, we were able to watch it a day early off of HBO Max. I think it just hit theaters today, so we're looking to try and get this up pretty quick. Uh, we'll give a, a quick heads up if this is the first time you're listening. Um, this is a very spoiler-ridden podcast, so we put big old spoilers on everything we do here. So if you haven't watched it and you want to watch it before you listen to our review, please go ahead and do so. Come on back. If not, let's go ahead and get into this. So uh, we'll go ahead and check in on the shop before we get into that review. Hey man, are you still handling the uh, the customer appreciation night at the shop? Oh yeah, man, it's always been a dream of mine to plan one of these things. Uh, I actually even brought in a ringer. A ringer? Uh, yeah, man, it's this guy Dennis Villanova. I found him on LinkedIn. He's like a big time event planner. Big time, I bet. Uh, do you recall or our agreed budget for the customer appreciation week? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. If, like 1500 right? 1500 That is right. Uh, I got a call from the bank, though, for uh, suspected fraud because, I don't know, a $30,000 charge appeared. Uh, Jesus, he didn't say that. That they'd they, be that expensive. They, they who, who is they? Oh, well, Dennis, uh, he thought it might be cool to have a petting zoo for the kids. For $30,000? Well, listen, Dennis, uh, he's got a big vision. Uh, he's importing some wallaroos and some capuchin monkeys. Uh, it's going to be great. Jesus. So this is, it, it's its going to have to come out of your bonus. I mean, we, we just don't have that kind of money laying around. Is there, by chance, anything for the adults that are actually paying for the repairs we do here? Or Oh, dude, absolutely. Again, Dennis is a pro. Uh, he found this farm in the Middle East that they grow these super rare mini palm trees. I was thinking we could pot them up and hand them out. Okay, not bad. Uh, please tell me that, uh, that Dennis has a discount on these trees. Dude, I told you, he's a pro. It's part of the 30K, but they got to grow them first, so there might be a little bit of a delay. No problem. Uh, we can push it back a little bit. I honestly need a few other weeks to clean up the warehouse. It'll give us some time to, to make sure the space looks really nice for everybody. Yeah, well, the grower's thinking he can have the order filled by July of uh, 2023. Okay, well, I mean, I understand that this was your dream, dude. And, and, and dreams make good stories, but, but everything important happens when we're awake. Yeah, fuck it. I'll see if I can get us a refund, and uh, I'll stick with what I'm good at. So let's go watch Doom. The Emperor fears a shift of power is taking place across the Imperium, and as such has chosen to restructure the current order of noble houses. The decision does not come without consequence, as House Harkonnen is stripped of their spice trade and House Atreides is called to continue the supply chain and reap the riches. 
Meanwhile, the Atreides heir attempts to decipher harrowing dreams of a future accessed by his mystic abilities. Alrighty, Travis, we're going to jump into a, a quick diagnostic here, but before we do, I want to tease the audience with our five points of inspection. And those are, in no particular order, Dennis Villanova, a sandworm eating its tail, pace car, visions of the future, and roll call. So before we get into that, do you want to go ahead and give us a quick diagnos diagno diagnosis, diagnostic? Mm -hmm. Do you want to give us a quick diagnostic of what you thought of this? Um, I actually wasn't intending to, because I, I really wanted to save the meat of it for the five point inspection. Because uh, as you mentioned, I think in the open, this is one of our most anticipated movies in the history of the Hollywood Chop Shop. Uh, so I just want to make two broader points about movies. Uh, you know, sins, crimes that movies commit. But the first one is... A defense of a movie being good should not be something like, well, you'd like it a lot more and understand it a lot more if you read the book. <laughs> it, doesn't make, it doesn't necessarily make those movies bad, but by definition to me, they're flawed. Mm -hmm. And a second rule I have about movies, again, I don't want to hear, well, the story or this character will make a lot more sense in the sequel. So with that information, do what you will. What did you think? All right, so I, I think you're you're in a right position here. Normally, this is the part where we just give a really high you know synopsis of what we thought of the film before we jump in. But I think a lot of what we're going to talk about is going to be heavily uh, covered in the five point inspection, and then we always do a recap at the end as to how what we feel about the movie. So I think we should just jump right into five point inspection. Um, do you want to start with Dennis? I'll start with Dennis and right. for the audience, maybe who's new to the podcast. Uh, a few weeks ago, you dropped, uh, you were talking about Denny Villeneuve, the director of this movie and pronounced his last name Villanova. And I just thought it would be funny. The American version of this director is <laughs> Dennis Villanova. <laughs> and apparently an event planner. A uh, um, very expensive one at that. <laughs> He has supplanted Christopher Nolan as my favorite working director. So I think my favorite part of this movie was watching him grow as a director. I feel like he used elements that he used in most of his previous works to make this the best vision he could. And, and I have a few examples of that, if you would allow me. My favorite Denny Villeneuve movie, Sicario. Um, the Sandcrawler failed rescue scene in this movie. Did it give you, you've seen Sicario, I know. Did it give you any Sicario vibes? Um, maybe a little, I don't know if I really got huge, aside from the fact that the setting is kind of in, in the desert, but, um, I guess there is the shots after they've picked up the people, like the close-ups of them kind of huddled in the back of the ships that it does feel a little bit like. Well, let me, let me say the way that helicopters were shot in Sicario and aerial shots, I feel like was heavily used with this. They're not helicopters. They're weird little dragonfly wing things, mm -hmm. but that gave me Sicario vibes. And then just the tension of that scene, it gave me a military vibe as they're waiting for this, the, the sandworm to attack. They know that it is that tension to me. He used elements of Sicario as far as the border crossing scene. Mm -hmm. So just his use of kind of military tension and equipment is, is more what I'm seeing there. 
Yeah, and even I will say that that is probably the most tension in that movie. Like I, I felt it too, and like I even thought it was going to wind up working perfectly, and they weren't going to have to rescue the guys. And I still had tension when I thought everything was going to work perfectly. Yeah, I mean, for that reason, I think it's my second favorite scene of the movie, and I'll get to my first here. But uh, let me move on. He also directed Arrival. Hmm. Um, the use of spacecrafts, the scene I'm specifically thinking of uh, when the Reverend Mother's ship is taking off mm -hmm. and, and kind of that fog and you kind of get it from the, the point of view of the person on the ground watching it take off. I thought it was brilliant use of CGI using that foggy night setting to kind of cover your flaws but also build atmosphere and if you've seen arrival i think that's absolutely something he does in that movie also just his sense of scale like he has an amazing sense of scale in this movie or like the ships actually feel gigantic because i'm sure there will be plenty of references to star wars um throughout this episode but like that's something I never really got from Star Wars was the sense of scale of the ships and stuff like that. Like, I think in some of the later movies, they tried to put like a Star Destroyer in an atmosphere. But like, you never really get a real sense of scale. Whereas this movie, like, you realize the magnitude of the ships and everything that is going through. And just like, everything feels gigantic. And the way that these long shots over some of the cityscapes and stuff like that. Like, everything feels enormous in this movie. Well, yeah, and uh, even going back to the scene we were talking about with the sand crawler rescue, seeing that sandworm on the horizon and the cloud of dust that it's creating, again, the sense of scale is, is right there, and that aided the tension. Um, real easy one, Blade Runner 2049. I think the influence there is obvious, him working on that and what he could translate to this movie as far as a futuristic setting and you know, clothing, set design, et cetera. That's your area, I know. So did you have any comments on that? So I actually, I, this, was a, this was a weird one for me because I, Blade Runner 2049, I think was absolutely one of my favorite movies in recent memory, um, both story-wise and even just visually. So it's interesting going from the steam, or not steampunk, but the cyberpunk, where like there's tons of bright lights and the contrast between the dark and the light and stuff like that, um, especially with the neon lights. I think it's just absolutely beautiful. Um, Denny also loves like gold. Like you see that a lot in 2049 and I saw that a lot in this movie. And even then he does a great job at the use of contrast. And I don't know, sometimes I think it's cheating because he uses just black and white or he'll use like white on black, you know, a shadow or he'll use black on like the desert scape. But like because he, his use of that contrast, it makes everything, I hate to say this, but like pop and it stands out and it gives such emphasis to what's going on with the characters that, yeah, I, I think it's absolutely beautiful the way he uses that. Like no scene was muddy to me. And some of the scenes, even where it was, it was yellow sand with like yellow buildings, but there was still a, a enough contrast where like you got an idea of the texture of the landscape and how basically the rocks change to all of these buildings that are basically windowless because, you know, or as Arrakis is so hot that, you know, during the day they have to close everything off to keep everything cool. I'm like, yeah, there's just his sense of lighting is, is impeccable in this movie. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about some flaws, but visually I, I have not one complaint. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Uh, and then my final thing with Dennis Villanova, my favorite scene of the movie as we discussed right before jumping on, some of the names in this movie are ridiculous. <laughs> I don't remember the in-universe name, but it's basically the box of pain scene. Mm-hmm. Yep. With the Benny Gesserit? 
Yes. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm assuming you have that in front of you. I uh, no, but I'm uh, yeah, <laughs> we're we're good. <laughs> the Bene Gesserit. Okay. Yeah, well, it's the, it's the the yeah, the head mother of the Bene Gesserit. Yeah, and when she's testing Paul, I guess to see if he can control his emotions because he's wielding such great power. Mm -hmm. I got a lot of that was my favorite scene of the movie. A lot of tension. And it, it gave me a lot of hope for the rest of the movie, which not necessarily pays off. But uh, I was thinking of a movie he did with Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal called Prisoners. And it's a I'm much not more small. One. What's that? I'm not familiar with that one. Well, it is great. I would recommend it to anyone. A little bit heavy. Um but you don't need to know the plot, but he, it's a much more small-scale, lower-budget, intimate drama. Uh, well, drama thriller. And he does a, Denny Villeneuve does a great job of creating tension in everyday scenarios in small sets. And I thought he used that effectively, which is essentially just a woman and a guy in a room with a chair and a box. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was, it was flawless in the way that it was filmed, dialogue, etc., yeah, and actually the scene um, shortly after that I thought was really striking where it was Paul and Jessica talking in the fog where it's like yes. when they're talking, it's a zoom in for the audience to see their emotion, but ultimately he still would, you know, he cut in there where you're seeing that they can't see each other's expressions and they're basically talking to each other through this shroud of fog. And like, I thought that that was an absolutely beautiful shot as well. And again, that's one of those where the environment is very muted because it's this fog, but he uses these very, like, I think Paul is in all black and I can't remember. I believe Jessica is as well. And it's like, so they stand out even in this very muted, diluted scene, you know? Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that scene up because I even thought it was a good subtext on they're talking to each other through a fog and it feels like Paul never really knew his mother or at least this side of his mother with everything that's going on because uh, the, the prologue to that scene and then what you're talking about, the epilogue, all of that is Paul kind of being surprised that, yeah, you've, you've been pulling the strings my whole life to make me something, I guess the one quote unquote or the chosen one to yeah. rip off two different science fiction universes. Well, the irony is they kind of weren't ripping off two other science fiction <laughs> genres. So um do you have anything else you want to talk about, Denny, or that I think that's a perfect transition no, into a sandworm a eating its tail. Yeah. yeah. So that's um that's a beautiful transition because a sandworm eating its tail is essentially watching this movie, it's been a very like I watched I read the book back in high school, so I'm very foggy in what happens in the book, but you can definitely see where Dune influenced Star Wars and countless other sci-fi stories and stuff like that, but I'll really focus on Star Wars with this, but Dune influenced Star Wars, and then while watching the 2021 version of Dune, I can see where Star Wars influenced Dune, and then I can only assume where the 2021 Dune is going to wind up influencing the next round of Star Wars, where it's just like, it's this, you know, basically the snake eating its tail type thing, but, you know, again, making the metaphor for, um, for Dune here, but, like, some of the, the best examples I have are, I mean, if some of the low-hanging fruit, of course, the Bene Gesserit are basically your Jedi and your Sith. They're built out a little bit different, but it's a mystic, for you know, council that works outside of the normal government, the Imperium, or, you know, the, the Republic or Empire. I guess it would be the Empire, the Jedi are gone at that point. 
Um, you know, I love the idea of, you know, this entire movie talks about an emperor that you never see, you only hear about. And that's very, you know, Star Wars A New Hope. You never see the emperor in that entire movie. He's only referenced as basically the top dog, the, you know, the big boss battle at the end of Star Wars. Um, even, you know, the sand planet is ta tattooing and stuff like that. So you can see major influences because Dune, because Dune was definitely written before Star Wars. You can see where George Lucas took a lot of that. Um, and then kind of the Star Wars influencing Dune is like my one of the best examples to me is I don't know if you remember the, sh the first time we see the Baron when he is basically like it, he's naked and he's in like that fog and it's like it's a black scene and all you do is you see the white mist around him. Yeah, it looked like he was in a sauna. Of Very much reminded me of Darth Vader and in the meditation chamber in Empire Strikes Back. Like that whole scene, like I just immediately thought of Darth Vader in the meditation chamber. Um, the military uniforms uh with the uh what is it atreides i thought were you know i know it's a military uniform but to me again was very reminiscent of the empire's uniforms throughout the the star wars franchise paul of course being the chosen one dune had that idea but to me paul to me the way that timothy shamala Sh <laughs> you know i'm gonna chalamet. get that chalamet the way that uh timothy chalamet plays paul in this movie to me is like oh that's how hayden christensen was supposed to play anakin had george <laughs> lucas not been directing the movie because i'm like the whole time i'm watching i'm like oh this is anakin like this feels exactly like this is what anakin was supposed to be and i have and that's why i'm saying i can't remember the book because i'm trying to remember how paul acts in the book and if there's you know i think denny did a great job of you know keeping very close to the source material but at the end of the day i'm like it does feel like that's the way that he was being directed is very much how you saw Anakin being directed. And then again, that very heavy usage of black and white, like star Wars was notorious for using black and white and red throughout everything. So, um, and, and some of the, the shots that Lucas did again with, you've got these stark white stormtroopers with, you know, the dark backgrounds or Darth Vader being black, you, you know, the, the first episode or uh, scene in, in a new hope when he's walking through the white hallways of the Republic ship or, are the rebel ship and he's just the stark black character like to me again some of the way that the original star wars trilogy was shot very much to me influenced the way dune was shot and then again to me again it's just going to continue repeating kind of how this works and i don't know if you saw any other examples or if you agree with anything i just said with that no i absolutely agree I've never read Dune, so I'm kind of coming into this with just a Wikipedia knowledge of it. But, yeah, I don't think until watching this I realized how much George Lucas just took what everyone considered an unfilmable novel or series of novels and then just kind of cherry-picked elements to then allow him to make the very much filmable Star Wars saga. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and then and the only other thing I would say about that, I know, you know, Lucas was heavily inspired by the Joseph Campbell, you know, hero saga, but can we please, at least for a little while, retire the chosen one motif, specifically you the in sci-fi? <laughs> you don't want You don't want a chosen one in every sci-fi movie that you watch? That's weird. I mean, I'll, I'll just touch on this briefly since we are talking about Star Wars. I think The Last Jedi is the best of the new franchise by a country mile because at least 
the director had the guts to say, you know what, we're going to fucking scrap this. Ray is a very specific person in the universe. She's from nobody. I love that. And of course, sci-fi fans shit all over it. <laughs> and so here we are back with, you know, Timothy Chalamet is the one. Well, that also might be why I love Blade Runner 2049 so much. If you haven't seen that movie, here comes more spoilers. But like when you find it the whole time when like, you and the audience think, oh, my God, it's him. He's the chosen one. And then all of a sudden, the rug gets pulled out from underneath. I'm like, Who? no, you're not the chosen one. What the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, I absolutely love that twist in that movie where it's just like, no, you're the story might be about you, but you're not the chosen one. You know, you're you're just another a piece in the story. And I absolutely loved that in, in Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, I mean, so even Denis Villeneuve was willing to kind of go to there uh, you know, as Ryan Johnson tried to, but I guess it's just not rewarded. It's not a money-making formula in this genre. So in terms of the hero's journey, all that, I want to, I think that's a good transition into visions of the future. Um, so this one to me, a, a lot of what I wanted to, to cover here is I'm very interested with how the movie ended, how you think the general audiences are going to react to the end of this movie and do you think it potentially gets the sequel because the way that this this whole thing was pitched or everybody knows is dune 2021 is just the first half of the dune book so basically as we're talking about the hero journey this movie has no resolution because it is halfway through the hero's journey that the movie stops and i think it's very interesting that they chose to go down the route of making this a movie versus a miniseries, knowing that that's where they chose to end this movie. Because, again, there is absolutely no resolution at the end of this movie. Well, you say the general audience. You've read Dune, which means you are not the general audience. I'm the general audience. Mm-hmm. And Brett, I, I think it's fucking bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what my thought is. A movie has to be able to stand on its own. I, I, I don't care how great the sequel might be. I need to be able to spend two hours and 36 minutes and feel like I took a complete journey, even if I know ultimately it's not over. Yeah, and that's... I, and, and the One more thing, I'm sorry. We're living in the post-golden age of television. Who the fuck thought it would be better to do this as a two-hour movie and hope that in four years we get a sequel rather than just trying to cash in on Game of Thrones. Well, and to it's, me, it's idiotic to me. Yeah. And to me, that's, that's really where I want to take this discussion because in, in the, the current entertainment climate of what we're doing and all that, I don't know if they want, if this is a bold experiment to see if they're trying to make the transition between traditional cinema where you have a story that's told and it's done and you might have a, a trilogy or you might have continuing stories and what they're doing with like HBO and Netflix where it's these miniseries or it's these episodic seasons where it's like, you know, Game of Thrones is a great example of that. They took the first book of Game of Thrones and made it a 10 episode series of about an hour long episode. So you had a full book over 10 hours of material and even that they had to cut some stuff out and like and instead of taking dune and doing the same treatment to that which again hbo has to be looking for their next game of thrones and it can't after the way they ended game of thrones well, like they think it's going to be game of thrones again 
Right, but why take that? Why take that risk, knowing how much people hated how they ended that series? Like, it already I feel has a mark against it. But like, this is so much. Like, this movie is one part like sci-fi, aka Star Wars, you know, fantasy in the in in the in space. One part fucking Game of Thrones with all the houses and the emperor and all of the you know the politics behind it. I'm like, if you got access to this source material, why didn't you try and make this into your series? Because the problem with this movie is it's so freaking dense. There's stuff like, and to your point earlier, like I hate when it's there, there's an Easter egg where they don't explain anything. And I think the was it the min, mental mental mentals? I forget what it is. Um, the mentats, maybe. Mintats. I don't know. I know, I know mintats, you're referring to. Yeah, are a great example of this. Where like they establish them as metahumans in the movie, and they have some kind of superpower. I have no idea what that superpower is. All I know is that their eyes roll into the back of their head, and something crazy comes out right so it's like that's something that needs some level of explanation or even yeah you know, there's there's the um the the shield you know i don't know if i missed it but do they ever explain that the reason that there's no guns in this movie is because the shields basically stop anything coming at a high speed so that's why everybody fights with swords because i think the sword fighting's cool it's different because you're in space and no one's using lasers and stuff like that but at the same time it's like i don't know if that's ever explicitly explained because you're trying to cram an entire movie into two, into essentially four hours because you're going to hopefully get two two-hour movies instead of going the route like Game of Thrones and making this into a series, and especially considering I think there's at least six books in the main series of Dune, and then there are a whole bunch of, like, you know, side stories and stuff like that. And you don't have to worry about, like, the it's already there. The material's done. You don't have to worry about if the, the creator's going to die before he finishes the story. Yeah, I, there's there's so much unexplained. I realized that I was probably in over my head if I tried to watch this movie without some level of prep. But apparently computers are outlawed in this universe, which is why even though this is beyond human comprehension as far as how far in the future this is, mm-hmm. when they're flying in those, you know, dragonfly helicopters, the controls are very, you know, 1960 Vietnam helicopter. And you might be wondering why that is. But this movie, yeah, this movie is wise to not even introduce the fact that, yeah, computers are outlawed in this universe. But again, so much is kind of there, but no real explanation as to why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, like I said, I just I think it takes it back to I think you have to think about the source material, and I feel like because of shows like The Mandalorian and The Witcher and Game of Thrones, because of how successful they've been in that episodic, you know, season format. To me, if you're going to do books like this, that's the route you have to go because it's tried and true and the budget's there now as opposed to like when you write up like Blade Runner 2049 is a great movie to me because it is a full story. And that's because it was written specifically for a movie. It was written for the whatever the runtime of that movie is, whereas this is, oh, we have a book. It has all of this material. We've got to see what we can cherry pick, what we can cut down, what we can allude to so that we can make sure it fits into the time frame that we've we've been given because it has to be traditional cinema and i'm just like why go that route like i just don't with a with a piece like this like if you want to do something dune-esque then do that but write it in a movie format so you know you're telling the whole story as opposed to this we're gonna cut it right in the middle because again as a viewer as someone who does know the source material i was frustrated with how the movie ended i'm like 
again, there's no there's no resolution. Like I, we talk about this all the time. Like, what was the point of the movie? Like, I didn't get anything out by the end of the movie. Yeah, and here's the thing. I'm gonna push back on your Mandalorian comparison because this would be ex- way superior to the Mandalorian. I love the Mandalorian. My only complaint about the Mandalorian is it feels like it's always a fetch quest of the week. You wouldn't even have to do that with Dune. Like you said, this material is so dense that you could focus on various characters, various plot lines, and always tell a great story per episode that still ties into a longer narrative easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just... I, I, I think some of the relationships, you don't get the payoff. I Again, to bring it back to Game of Thrones again, like Leto, him dying... To me, if you had been able to do that over the course of 10 episodes, you would have had the same impact as Ned Stark being killed. Like, holy shit, like, he's the good guy, and he just got beheaded. Like, instead, Leto, you only get little snippets of him interacting with people, and, like, they do a great job with the sand, uh, with the the spice hauler, because that's where they show, okay, he's a compassionate leader. He's not, he's more interested in the 21 lives than the riches that they would get off of the spice. And it's like, okay, that's the only opportunity we really get to establish him then outside of his family that he is a caring leader because there's so much else going on in this movie. We don't have an opportunity to actually know who this character is, you know, to actually be invested when ultimately he is betrayed. Well, I want to let you kind of vamp as much as you want to on the visions of the future because I feel like we're edging towards roll call and talking about the characters of this movie. So do you have anything else that you wanted to get in? No, I think this is a good good spot to to jump into roll call. Okay, well, let me ask you a question then because I wasn't aware that you read the books. Uh, I've got a long list of characters that I feel like are wasted in this movie, but... I want to focus on Oscar Isaac as, uh, what is it, uh, Duke Leto, Leo? Mm-hmm. I think it's Leto, Duke Leto. Hopefully yeah. I'm not wrong in that. I know you're foggy on the books. What? It feels like he already knows this is a trap. Yes. And just walks into it. And I guess if it, in a longer form, you know, miniseries or full-out series maybe they could flesh out why he feels compelled to just walk into this trap in the movie i don't understand why he's just willing to do this do you know i think it goes back to the politics of the situation where like you can't deny the emperor like basically if the emperor asks you to do this you're gonna wind up doing it like house atreides always you know they're always there for whatever duty is called upon because they're a part of the system and all that Whereas there's a weird, you know, not weird, but there's a throwaway line about basically how, oh, the reason the Emperor is setting them up to die is because House of Treaties, like, a lot of people are looking at them as a house of power and possibly to usurp the the current Emperor. Like, he's jealous, he doesn't like that they're getting attention. But I'm like, that's something you have to establish and elaborate on. Like, you can't just be a throwaway line. You know, again, to bring it back to Star Wars, one of my favorite world-building throwaway lines is in A New Hope when... Grand Moff Tarkin walks in to the, his, you know, the group of military leaders and basically says, like, the Emperor has dissolved the Senate. 
this Death Star, you know, oh, well, then how are we going to make sure that we don't have rebellion across the universe? Oh, that's what the purpose of this Death Star is. I'm like, and it's like, I think it's like two lines, but it establishes so much that's going on in the universe and you don't need any more. You completely understand like, oh, there's an emperor, there's a government. Basically, he's become tyrannic or tyrannical, and essentially, he now has a super death laser to keep everybody in check. Like he's going to strong arm everybody. That doesn't happen in this movie. It's just a quick throwaway line to show, like, oh, the reason the emperor doesn't like these guys is because he's afraid they might take power. But at the same time, you know, Duke Leto seems like he's he's pretty much for the Imperium, and he's not looking to overthrow anybody. Exactly. I. I needed more information about the House of Trades' relations with the Emperor, because as it stands, I'm sorry, the Atre the House of Atreides just look like morons. They just walk into a trap unprepared, and bad things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, I have so many characters that I wanted to see more of, and they're just not there. And it's because Timothy Chalamet is the lead, and I will admit, I was impressed. You, I think you said it perfectly. He is what Hayden Christensen should have done. Like, he's likable, but feels like he's put upon by some sort of prophecy. Right, he's young, so, so he's a little entitled, so it's like, understandably, why yeah. he's not a leader yet. Right, like, Mom, I just woke up. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to practice my psychic ability. But I'll just read off some characters, and you, you key on one if you, if you have thoughts. But all of these characters I wanted to see more of. Duncan Idaho, played by Jason Momoa. So, I wanted more. <laughs> so how, how much spoilery do you want me to go into the Dune universe? Uh, I know enough. Oh, so that he becomes... He gets cloned a thousand times. He's the only character I think that's in it every six of the Dune like main stories. Like Duncan Idaho just keeps coming back and back and back and back, and he's like the faithful servant to House Atreides. So you Which, might get I mean, more of him. This movie does kind of set up because Momoa is in the canyons towards I, but, the end, so right? My yeah. So here's here's the thing. Might be an unpopular opinion. I thought he was the the weakest actor in this movie. I thought he was by far almost weird that he was in it uh, by everybody else's performance. Ooh, like I, I strongly disagree. I love Jason Momoa, but to me, he still felt so bro-y in this. And I don't know if it's just because I can't detach him from Aquaman, unfortunately, but I'm like, I just, I didn't, I thought he was the weakest, the weakest performance in the movie. I would say, number one, that still might be true. But I think that's a byproduct of this cast is stacked. Yeah. Which, again, we're, we're going to talk about more wasted talent in this movie. But also, he's the only one that brings any sort of relatability to the real world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nobody else feels like you would meet them in your day-to-day -day life in 2021. So I, I, I thought he brought a levity that was needed. He did, and he did play a great role of, like, the best friend. Like, he's the exact person you would expect to be loyal to you to the end, and, like, he is just your buddy. Um, but to your point, like, he sticks out like a sore thumb because he is the only one who does that in this movie. So he does feel so out of place. Uh, yeah, 
I agree. I don't take that as a negative, but I can see why, yeah, if it's breaking the thematic flow of the movie, why you would say that. I think that's a perfect transition to Josh Brolin as uh, Gunnery Halleck. You're going to love him in the sequels. <laughs> what happened to him? Uh, like, I feel like halfway through the movie, he just disappears. Did I miss something? Uh, they just they had the battle in the palace and they again because this movie has no fucking resolution you have you just have to assume that he's dead but he winds up in a slave pit a Har- Harkonian slave pit and comes back okay so he's not dead nope and that's why I can only assume why they put so many like they stacked this this cast is because if Danny gets his way he's gonna they're gonna get to make like a whole their new star wars out of this like you know so they've got these big names that they'll get to bring back into roles and they they, you know they're looking towards the future like if this is a successful franchise but like to your point it's really weird how stacked this cast is especially with how many characters you know nothing about or they just disappear off the screen yeah, I read a uh, Dune prepper for this just to have an idea because I was worried that I'd be so bogged down in names and things. You think there's but a podcast, he... Dune Day Preppers? That's a podcast <laughs> that needs to be made. Cut that. We need to we need to copyright that. <laughs> um, but apparently his backstory is he was tortured by uh batistas invade the invasive the the people who used to own dune he was tortured by them as a kid is that right uh yeah he was tortured by the harkonians i believe he comes back like i don't and maybe that's where i'm getting confused in his practice scene like he's kind of weirdly angry about them but that's all we know i'm like if i didn't read this prepper i would have no idea why he's behaving this way yeah i i'm i'm 90 percent sure gurney comes back Okay, so um, Zendaya. Why is Zendaya in this movie? Like, if I were her agents, I would be extremely upset by this. Because, again, she's very important to the second half of the book and the rest of the story. (laughs) And you know what? (laughs) To your point, that would work in long-form TV if we had 10 episodes of Paul dreaming about her. But as Mm -hmm. it stands, it's like, here's two scenes of of Paul dreaming about this mysterious woman, and then we'll meet her at the end of the movie for four minutes. Well, and they said that's actually a lot of those dream sequence were basically a response to if they didn't have that, she wouldn't have, she would have been in 10 minutes of the movie. So they, they kind of did that. And I'll get into that with some of the pacing that I actually think was interesting. Um, But yeah, ultimately, yeah, she plays a much bigger part. So a lot of this is set up. And my last one, and I'm going to be very brief because this is the root of my chop shop this week. But Dr. Hugh, the one who ultimately betrays House Atreides, or Treyu, I don't fucking, what's it called? What? The House Atreides. House Atreides, yeah. The doctor that, mm-hmm. yeah, he lowers the shields. Dr. Hugh, I think is his name. Dr. Hugh, yeah. Hugh, yeah. Hugh, yeah. I needed more of his motivations, which I solved in my chop shop, but I just wanted to plant that little seed. Yeah, and that's to me one of those sins. If you're going to have a betrayal in a movie, you have to hint at it. And I'm not saying it has to be as aggressive as like, you know, the scene of the cook from the Hunt of the Red October. But like, 
you have to establish something else is going on so that when that comes out of nowhere, it's like, oh, those seeds were planted somewhere as opposed to just like, oh, no, he seemed like a loyal servant to the house of Trades, And, you know, he was a confidant because he knew that Paul went and did the the pain box. But yet at the end, he was the one who double crosses. You know, it's just it's very weird that and with it just comes out of nowhere. Trope of like, oh, they've got my wife. Which, by the way, like, it's the Harkonians. Why would you think she's still alive? Exactly. But, like, that's the oldest trope in cinema. Like, Fate of the Furious. It's the plot line of Fate of the Furious. Vin Diesel is bad because they've got somebody he loves. I'm like, that's lazy. Well, it also I'm sure made... in, the, in the books it's more explained, but I need more in the movie. Yeah, and, and Hugh, it makes him look like a, a really shitty character just in all because I'm like, do you realize you basically destroyed an entire bloodline, entire lineage that would actually wanted to help this planet so that a dictatorship could come in and take over who wants to destroy and just rape the planet for one person? You sacrificed all of that for one person. And I know it's hard because it's supposed to be his wife, but I'm like, that's still, it's a very crazy thing that like the character can't see the forest for the tree, you know? But to your point, if he thought about it for a second, she's already dead based upon the the opponent, the enemy that has her. So it's not even like you're actually saving her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that that's what I had for roll call. So if you have anything to add, please do. No, not really. I, the only other thing is, you know, I'm I can't remember. Like, I thought was it uh, was it Thufir Hawat, the the other you know, human calculator guy. Uh, for the Arconians, I would have loved to have known more about what happened. Like, he's another one that just disappears in the movie, like, just disappears in the far. Um, Stilgar is another huge name that, you know, you have to assume, you know, that's Javier Bardem. Like, he just has a few, has a little he's bit of screen time. Yeah, has a little bit of screen time. You know, Stellan Skarsgård, I did think that they were going to do with more the Baron. The Baron has essentially two scenes, and I'm like, he's also a phenomenal actor. And I'm like, we don't get to see a whole lot of him either. <laughs> like this, there's again, it's just it almost is too stacked. And I guess you know, it is because they're hoping long term that they're going to get something out of this. Even Dave Batista, I think he only has what two lines in the whole movie. And I love he's just his, yelling about he's just a child throwing a tantrum about the planet, which I thought was a great scene because again, it shows the Harkonians as just being they're just almost animalistic and just like they have like just his pure rage about the whole thing. I'm like, I thought he did a great job with that, even though it was just essentially screaming. But I'm like, again, he has two lines in a scene where we get to see him viciously beheading people. I'm like, it's just crazy to me. Like, where's this movie? Like, there's so much more to this movie. You know, there's this is I'll say this. Dune feels like a prologue. This whole movie felt like a prologue for the actual movie we're going to get to watch. 100% agreed. And if that second movie is amazing, this will be a nice double feature. But I don't believe that's what movie making should be about. No, absolutely not. So with that, I think we'll jump into our last uh, point of inspection, uh, Pace Car, which we've already touched a lot about this and some of the other um, points of inspection, but just really wanted to focus on it. I think the pacing of this movie is, for a slow burn, I actually didn't mind it. I just thought the beginning, it was my biggest complaint. They, that, the beginning of this movie feels like it goes everywhere and nowhere at the exact same time. Like, they throw so much at you 
but there's no like it doesn't move the story forward they're just like there's just a ton of like just exposition being dumped on you in lore even if you don't know it's being dumped on you but like it's not actually progressing the story forward at all it's basically just we're standing still and observing we've basically got one of paul's hollow tapes and like we're trying to learn from it the movie's not moving forward we're just sitting there watching it you know i agree um i was i was curious because a little inside information if this is your first time listening we don't discuss in detail any of these topics. Brett gave me pace car as a topic, and that was it. So the ironic thing for me, I enjoyed the first hour or so of the movie. I, I, I recognize the exposition, the world-building stuff, but I did think they executed as best you possibly could. Mm -hmm. I've seen much worse in terms of world building and exposition. And I was excited about the tension of the setup. Like, hey, we're going to this world and we're kind of set up to fail because of political machinations. But then it's ultimately just like, yeah, the, you know, Batista's group, whatever they're called, the Baron's group, just come in and kind of ransack the place. So... I enjoyed the first half of the movie much more than the second half. So it sounds like you're opposite. So I'm interested to hear that. Oh, I don't know if it's that I'm opposite that I enjoyed the back half more. I just think the pacing of the first half of the movie was much. Like I said, it's it's a paradox because, like I said, I don't feel like it was at a breakneck speed. I just feel like a lot was dumped on you without necessarily progressing the story forward. Like it was just they were trying to give you just enough so that they could move to Arrakis and you could understand what Dune was about. But there there wasn't a whole lot actually moving the story forward. Um, I will say just in general, I think that the use of the dream sequences was kind of genius and keeping the pacing of the movie going forward because it felt like every time the movie started to slow down too much or it looked like you know it was losing wind, Ultimately, they would use a dream sequence to kind of interject some action or like kind of like stir you up a little bit. Um, and I thought that that was actually it was a great way because the dreams mean so much to the story in general that like they really used that the best way possible to make sure that the the story was moving forward. Again, you got Zendaya more in the movie than just the last 15 minutes. Um, but yeah, I just I did want to put light on that, that I, I thought the, the use of the dream sequence was really good. Yeah, dream sequences and setup as a whole, I think they did the best they could to introduce, again, like you said, an unfilmable, dense series of novels. Mm -hmm. I also, just as a as we're talking about the, the Harkonians, I did not think they did a great job of establishing them as animals that are just terrible. Like, aside from the fact that, like, they never showed how ruthless they could be. It was always just someone mentioned like, oh, they're tearing my wife apart like a doll or I was tortured in a pit or something like that. But when it actually came time to them having screen time, like you didn't see them torturing anybody. Like, but yes, Batista's character was beheading people, but it wasn't like, I mean, it was a clean hack. Like they were just cutting people. No one was being tortured or anything like that. The, the most was putting Leto naked in the chair as a as an act to, I guess, humiliate him and strip him of everything that made him who he was as a, as a noble, um, stripping him down to just his his nakedness there. But even that to me wasn't wasn't brutal. Like you know, to 
to the point to call them an PG-13, animal. PG-13, though. Yeah, but even then, I, th- I think there's ways to establish, like, if you had a torture scene or if you had them, like, going through their planet and you saw, like, out of focus things going on in the background. Like, I just... I to me it didn't establish them as these ruthless monsters as opposed to they were just I mean it's they're a political group that wants money like I don't think that they're much worse than a lot of other groups out there like yeah they killed some people but I mean even to the point when they stormed um Arrakis like they had the entire they had battalions from the emperor with them too so it wasn't like they were just these nasty asshole broods like like they were part of a a bigger plan than themselves too, you know. Yeah, no, that is very true. They come off as nothing more than a generic villain in this movie to me, not knowing the source material. Yeah, even the Baron, like I thought you said you weren't going to harm them. I'm not. I do, but the desert can oh, be very God. cruel, and it's just like, uh, oh, I mean, it does. It feel like the a Batman gener- logic from Batman Begins. Batman logic, or I was even say like, yeah, just like an old school Bond villain is what he felt like like it's just like oh yes but the desert will get them i'm like i'm sure it will oh yeah i'm sure it will (laughs) well you know they they drop the line well what if the truth sayers ask us questions about it i'm like what are the truth sayers abilities you flew them out to the desert and threw them from a fucking helicopter (laughs) can the truth sayers not see that (laughs) yeah well technically we didn't lie we didn't harm them we just put them out in a a world we knew they were gonna die in (laughs) like yeah exactly like I don't have to kill you, but I don't have to save you. <laughs> so I think that about does it for us uh, in terms of our five-point inspection. Um, if you're ready, I think we can jump into some Chop Shop. I am ready. So for those who have not had the pleasure of listening to the Hollywood Chop Shop, this is the part of the podcast where we uh, we take the movie as is Dune and then we try and convert it into a completely different genre. Um, we go ahead and we do a random generator to figure out what that genre is prior to watching the movie so we can take appropriate notes. I got miniseries, which I felt was a blessing for once because I've gotten some easy, real yeah, easy I got, money. Yeah, I got some real shit in the past. You, on the other hand, I believe True. got horror. Yes, sir. So you have to turn 2021's Dune Part 1 into a horror movie. Do you want to go first or would you like me to go first? I would like to go first, Brett, because for once... I kind of made a movie close enough to the original. Uh, if you haven't listened, I love to just Frankenstein them into random shit. This one keeps a little closer to the spirit of the movie, so I'm excited to share it with you. All right, let's do it. All right. So my chop shop, as you said, this week is horror. Uh, you introduced the element of trying to talk about other movies as a pitch, you know, what is the flavoring of this movie? So I've got three, the Amityville horror, the green Knight, and star Wars episode three revenge of the Sith. Okay. So 
Same basic premise as Dune. The only real big change I have is our point of view character is going to be Dr. Wellington U. Is U the pronunciation you would go with? Yeah, I think that's right. All right, so just when I say you for the rest of the description, it's not you, Brett, it's the character. Okay, okay, I'm glad you made that distinction because I, I probably would have been yeah. a little confused. So he's the doctor that betrays House Atreides. Who's the uh, doctor? The only small ch- What's that? Who's the doctor? Doctor, you. You. I'm not the doctor. Who's the doctor? You, you're you on second base, but <laughs> you is the character. <laughs> Sorry, I want uh, to interrupt so you again. Small... I couldn't. I couldn't resist. <laughs> I'm just gonna leave this long silence in here for dramatic effect. <laughs> so the small change I'm gonna make is that his wife is still very much alive, and they are still together, happily married. They're serving under House Atreides on Kaladin uh, before joining them on Dune. Uh, so upon arrival to Dune, Dr. Yu starts having nightmares. The nightmares start off as more abstract in nature, just kind of fire and destruction. A few nights go by, and then the dreams expand. An ominous figure approaches as a silhouette backlit by the flames and destruction we previously saw in the dream. Dr. Yu starts having the dreams nightly, and the restless nights kind of, they begin to reflect in his personal appearance. His wife grows concerned, and he confides in her what's going on. You know, she comforts him, very caring in nature, and it kind of instantly makes Dr. Yu, not you, Brett, but Dr. Yu, more comfortable. He feels more at ease trying to go to sleep at night, but the nightmares persist. And they begin to reflect the death of Dr. Yu's wife. Now, Dr. Yu's too afraid to tell his wife at this point that she's involved in the dreams, but the dreams become more and more vivid. So I'll pause here. I feel like the nightmare element would lend itself to horror. So you just have to imagine these visions of his wife dying. I guess there's no romantic way to have your wife die, but dial up the horror elements okay so i i assume it's not going to be like the the dream sequence where it's just a bunch of flashes and then they wake up immediately see actually are we actually going to experience the dreams with him where he actually kind of goes through these dreams yes exactly okay we're going to live in those dreams with him they're going to feel very real and kind of more and more will be revealed throughout throughout each dream but they're all going to be horrific in their own right Okay. But it's kind of building on the same dream. Um, so he's too afraid to tell his wife because they're becoming more and more vivid. And now I want you to imagine this dream. You, the, the doctor, you, is seeing his wife standing in the middle of a field. And the field is on fire. I'm imagining maybe like the palm trees in this movie that okay. get set ablaze. Like a field of those. Now, does it? So she stay. Does this dream start off in a fire? Because I'm almost thinking, almost like the gladiator scene when he's walking through the field, and then all of a sudden it just like flashes and bursts into flame. So it's almost like he's at ease, and then all of a sudden something rushes in on him and destroys the you know this beautiful landscape. 
Um, not no. so much. No, it, it it'll come full circle. You'll you'll understand where I'm going. Okay. Uh, but she's standing in the middle of field on fire, and in the dream, they're making eye contact. He's looking in his wife's eyes as this fire blazes around her. And as the dream progresses, now there's a shadowy figure riding from behind his wife, like through the flames, riding on a horse. And, you know, you get the sense in the dream that something bad is really going to happen with this shadowy figure. But again, the dreams build. We get a little more each time. So at this point, Dr. Yu, he can't share this with his wife. He's kind of losing grip of reality. He's a doctor. So he starts to prescribe himself various medications, which at first they kind of seem to quell the dreams and the nightmares. And uh, his wife notices the improvement. You know, life is getting back to normal. Let's have a romantic candlelit dinner. So the two are kind of in their house, quarters, whatever you want to call it. You know, they're having a nice bottle of wine, some food, uh, enjoying the candlelit dinner in each other's company. Um, suddenly, though, Dr. Yu notices a small cut on his wife's neck. And the cut, it seems to keep growing in size and blood begins to kind of trickle down her neck. And his wife notices the concerned look on his face and, you know, hey, baby, what's wrong? She's completely oblivious to the blood that's now pouring down from her throat. And Dr. Yu at this point is almost catatonic now, and he screams in terror as the candle flames grow several feet in height. Uh, and we would shoot this, side note, from a side angle, looking at the table with both of them in side profile at the dinner table. So okay. you just see those flames just shoot up into the air. Uh, and then finally... Dr. Hugh snaps back to reality because his wife is like, hey, baby, 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 what's going on? And he realizes it was a nightmare again, but now he's having waking nightmares. He was literally in the middle of this dinner and just went catatonic and had this dream. So he kind of ups his dosages and... Uh, He's trying to conduct his normal business to serve House Atreides, and now he's hearing a voice in his head. Much like the voice in this movie. Same vibe, Brett. And the voice is telling him the only way to save his wife is to disable the shields outside of the city and to do it on a specific night. And Dr. Yu realizes this is insane, no way. He's trying to desperately cling to his logic and his medical training. So we're going to flash forward to the night that the voice has been telling him to disable the shield. And that night finally comes. And Dr. Yu, he doesn't give in to the urge. He actually has a normal day, goes to bed with his wife. He actually walks in. She's already asleep, so he kind of just tucks in next to her and tries to just make it a normal night. But Dr. Yu has the field of fire nightmare again, 
And again, he's seeing his wife just helplessly standing in this field with wide eyes as that shadowy figure rides up from behind. And the figure is about to chop her head off. And then, unlike all of the other dreams, his wife speaks directly to him while making eye contact. And he's, she says, Wellington, baby, save me. Disable the shields. And then Dr. Yu awakens in a sweat next to his wife, and he views it as a sign that he has to disable the shield because otherwise his wife will die. And he's going to do it, just like in the movie. And just like in the movie, it's going to get noticed by Duncan, who sounds the alarm. And this all happens before Dr. Yu can make it back to his quarters where his wife is. So he's running through the halls as the alarm sounds. And when he finally arrives at his room, his wife is nowhere to be found. And then right as he's frantically searching for his wife, yelling for her, baby, where are you? Where are you? He hears an explosion outside. And he opens the curtains in his window to see a field of palm trees on fire. And he sees his wife nearby shouting for him. Wellington! Wellington! He yells back from the window and she turns and faces him. Just as the, uh, was it Harkonnen? Yeah, Harkonnen. A Harkonnen soldier, yeah, yeah. Approaches by horseback from behind. Pulls out a sword, about to cut off her head. Cut to black. And we're going to stay on a black screen for a, a couple seconds. And while this black screen is up, we're going to hear some dialogue. Wellington, baby... Wake up! And we're going to cut to the couple's house on Kaladin. Baby, the movers just loaded the last of our stuff. You need to take a shower. We're going to miss our flight. Dr. Yu realizes that everything preceding this moment was a dream, and this is actually the morning that House Atreides is leaving for Dune. Roll credits. All right. And let me just say before you give me feedback, I wanted to do a horror element, but I also wanted to create an ending that was as unsatisfying as this movie's. <laughs> uh, it's funny because my comment was going to be, I that's not where I thought you were going to go with all this. And I guess that makes a whole lot of sense now. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, I, I feel like the horror visuals are there, the field on fire, his wife about to be decapitated, these nightmares. I think you could, especially with the waking nightmare. But again, I wanted to make sure the landing w was shit. So hopefully I did that. <laughs> oh, man. It was a dream within it. It was basically a shitty inception is what it was. Who's to say? Find out in part two, Brett, when we actually see what happens on Dune. <laughs> That's if he doesn't just a wake prologue, up. Yeah, it's just a prologue. So yeah, that was mine. I'm interested to see what you did with the miniseries. I feel like you don't have to make many changes, but you're good at making the right changes. 
Yeah, so um, my my pitch, my chop shop here, uh, used heavy, you know, uh, influence from Game of Thrones, and then even, you know, I'm sure some Star Wars will be sprinkled in there. But a lot of it was keeping the original and and kind of expelling on it and and using some of the, I guess, yeah, Game of Thrones how they structure their episodes. So ultimately, uh, you know, there's eight episodes, sorry, seven episodes in my first half of Dune series. Um, I'll give you a title to each one and then just a brief synopsis of what's going to happen in that episode. So that's typically how I like to do the miniseries. Don't go into too much detail because obviously each one of these could, is a mini movie. So we don't want to take up too much time here. But uh, if you're ready, I'll go ahead and jump into it. Please do. Alrighty. Episode one, The Imperium. So in this one, we're going to establish a uh, very high level Dune lore. Um, who the Imperium is, what the structure of power is, an introduction to the houses, and the Bene Gesserit. Just so as we continue to build out the series, you have the foundation you need to understand what's going on in this world so that when we're looking at the microcosm of what's happening with House Atreides, the Harkonnens, and all that, you understand how they fit into the Dune um, world as a, as a whole. Um definitely going to at some point explain the ai war so it explains a way why there is no you know any technology that mimics the human brain is basically outlawed because there was a giant ar ai war i will say as a side note i do love the industrial design of this movie i um i that's my kind of like my favorite era is like it's very reminiscent of almost kind of like world war ii um, technology stuff like that those helicopters even like the vietnam like i love the instrument panels and stuff like that so uh, i was a huge fan of that but It'll explain away the AI war, um, why everything is void of supercomputers and robots and stuff like that, and then use the and uh, this is an opportunity again to explain the Mintats um, and most importantly, kind of spice uh, the spice in Ar Arrakis. So again, kind of a heavy lore dump. We have an hour to do it, and we know that we have the rest of the the series to to explore more relationships and stuff like that. Episode two, House Atreides. We'll use this episode to explain the house, um, why there's kind of a power shift going on, you know, why people, you know, that was one of our big complaints about the movie is we didn't understand why people liked House Atreides. Um, it's assumed that because they are kind of, I guess, a, a compassionate leader and ruler, they're not a jealous emperor and all that. I uh, really want to dive more into Paul's relationship with Duncan, Leto, Jessica, and Gurney. Those are, you know, I feel like the the major moons circling his planet and stuff like that. So really want to give an opportunity to really see his relationship with all of them more so than, you know, sharing a scene, which is basically what we got in, in the Dune movie. Um, use a lot of these shots to establish the lush and bountiful world that they live in and the stark contrast to Arrakis, where it's basically a desert planet. I think Dune, the movie... Um, actually did a decent job of that, especially in the scene where do, uh, uh, Paul puts his hand in the water. Um, I just kind of want to push it a little bit further, just again, to, to show that stark contrast. Um, I also want Thufur Hawat. He was the, the um, what is it? The Atreides Mintat. Um, I want him, there, there to be a scene where he's really questioning Leto and the House of Atreides if they should accept the Emperor's request, and that ultimately he's like, I really think, you know, the Harkonnens should keep the planet. Like, almost to the point where it's like, it's, it's weird how much he's advising him against this decision. And that'll come back up. So... Uh, we're going to tease the the Harkonians at the very end of this episode, and basically as they're starting to retreat, retreat from the planet, 
We'll have a shot of the Baron towards the end of it, just very ominous. He'll have absolutely no lines in this episode. Again, it is just kind of to show kind of how dark and kind of almost mysterious these people are. Episode three, Fear is the Mind Killer. So this is the episode where we're going to focus on Paul and his dreams. Like maybe we've sprinkled them in and in maybe episode uh, two a little bit. But this is where, you know, we're going to dive into the Bene Gesserit and the pain box. This is an episode that I really want to pair with the Harkonnens and their anger of being forced off the planet. You know, this will begin to really understand how cold and calculated the Baron is. Um, some of his decisions, um, how they're made and, you know, his motivations as the leader of his people um, and his power and basically the power that the spice gave him and how basically he doesn't want to relinquish that power. Um, again, the movie had a throwaway line about how rich it made them, but I, I really want to dive more into that. This episode will also feature the torture of a woman um, and the impl implication that there is a spy or a traitor within House of Trades. We're not going to say who, how, who the woman's attached to or anything like that, but just that there is a woman being uh, tortured. And again, we're going to reveal to the audience that somewhere in House Atreides, there is there is a spy. So, episode four, Arrakis. House Atreides leaves their home world and embarks for Arrakis. During their departure, they um, it, this there'll be a lot more about the departure off the planet and travel in this episode. We're going to give an opportunity for Leto to show uh, in several scenes with various characters, him demonstrating his compassion, his strategy, and understanding of the situation. To your point, elaborating as to why he thinks this is a trap, ultimately the fact that he, why he feels that they have to do it, and then how he feels he's going to get his family out of this situation. Um, we're going to get a better idea of, of kind of who Leto is and why we should care about him. Again, uh, thinking, you know, Ned Stark and Game of Thrones, why he is, you know, he's this patriarch, he's the Duke, you know, what it is exactly about why he's a character we should care about. Um, Paul will be researching the Fremen. Uh, and inhabitants of Dune. This gives us kind of a foundation for when they actually do land so that, you know, we're not finding out about them for their first thing. Again, teasing future installments. Um, and gives us an, an idea of what's in store for the family when they arrive. The episode will essentially end with a touchdown on Arrakis and the, and the locals praising them much like the movie did. Episode 5. Spice. Leto and his group of explore Arrakis and get a better understanding of how the planet operates. While House Atreides is preparing for spice production, we're shown the conspiracy to end House Atreides through the Imperium. Um, so elaborating a little bit more on why, you know, why the Bene Gesserit, House Harkonnen, and the Emperor are all basically in cahoots to, to end Atreides and, and what their motivations are. Aside from, again, just a quick, you know, oh, in the shadows, them talking in the cone of silence. Um... Well, this will expel and explain more about why the Harkonnens hate House Atreides beyond just they were forced to the forced switch of power. The scenes in this episode are going to alterate one two one two one two one two one two one two between Atreides trying to bring peace to Arrakis, Leto's compassion and his plan to basically bring in the the, the Fremen, um, contrasting to the Baron and his brood plotting war, um, enlisting the Sardukar. The, uh, the Emperor's troops, and basically just that they are a war, warring people. Um, the episode will end with the assassination attempt on Paul, merging uh, in the two, basically, storylines will, will kind of merge with the perspective uh, and the assumption that Thufir Hawat is essentially the mole and allowed Paul to almost be killed. So 
kind of similar to what happened in the movie, but we're going to lean into it where the audience is going to think that actually, no, he is the mole and he was responsible. He was, you know, intentionally being negligent to try and allow Paul to be killed because I like the misdirect. Both sides uh, of the show will show the brutal nature of the galaxy, but it's going to really show how each, you know, the Atreides and the Harkonians, how they choose to deal with that reality. So again, it's everyone has the same situation, but we're showing the compassion and kind of the, the different leadership qualities, whereas the Harkonians are about brute strength, you know. Episode 6, War. The attack begins. This episode, there's not going to be a lot to it. Most of it's going to be dedicated to a large battle sequence. This is going to reveal when Dr. Yu actually was the traitor, much like happened in the, in the movie. Um, we are going to see Paul, Jessica, and Duncan as they escape in the assassination attempt um, by Leto on the Baron. So, you know, that is... Episode 6 is going to be very close to what we saw in the movie. It's just, you know, encapsulated in that one episode. And then we'll finish off the season with episode 7, um, Tal Rule. This episode will focus on Paul and Jessica and their relationship. Again, you know, a little bit of resentment because Paul feels like, you know, his life was taken from him because his mother basically tried to breed him to be the chosen one. And essentially Jessica and her, you know, uh, hubris. We see that a little bit in the movie Dune, which I appreciate, um, especially in the one where like, no, Paul has to get off planet. He can't stay here. Like just the fact that she thinks that there's somewhere in the universe that Paul can hide aside from on the on the desert planet of Dune. Um, but we're going to dive a little bit more into their relationship, especially as they are the only two surviving members that we know of, of House Atre um, what is it, Atreides. Uh, they'll have a sizable dialogue and prepare for what comes next. The two will meet Duncan, and the events of the movie will more or less stay the same. They escape thanks to Duncan's sacrifice and find themselves with uh, the Fremen. Paul still fights Jameis after he calls Amtel Rule. After defeating Jameis, Paul and Jessica join the Fremen and journey into the desert. Um, this is where the ending will be a little different. The scene is accompanied with shots of the Harkonians rebuilding the refinery and taking members of uh, our members of the House Atreides as prisoners, including Gurney. The last shot is going to be Paul basically walking in the desert. He's going to turn around and look at the camera. It's going to zoom on his face. And the scene is going to fade so that there is a blue moon superimposed over his eye to imply the future and transition going into the next season of him basically becoming a Fremen and you know, uh, becoming a spice Lord. So that was, and not a lot, you know, mini series was an easy one this week. I just kind of expelled on where I thought the movie are really needed to kind of elaborate a little bit in places. Yeah, I, I will say I, I was fully prepared to hear this, uh, chop shop from you because again, it, the material just, begs to be an HBO miniseries and not a movie. But I really do love that last image you leave on because I think that's one of the most important things about a, a long-running drama is what do you leave us on in that final episode right before credits roll? That visual you just gave me with Paul turning to the camera and that blue moon in the background, like, that gave me chills. Yeah, and that's. I do I have get, a question though. Uh huh. If I may, you meant who is the guy that Paul fights at the end of the movie? What did you say his name was? I think it's Jameis. Isn't his name Jameis? Yeah, I thought it was Jameis. Is he bigger in the book? No, did I not miss really. him in this movie? No, and that's why again, it's like 
you can tell it's almost like what happened with Lord of the Rings, where like they chose to, they had to figure out where to end the two towers to where there was some conflict at the end. Because technically, I think the spider doesn't appear until the third book in Lord of the Rings, and they brought it into the second movie so that, you know, that was a better place to end with some tension or like a cliffhanger type thing. No, I I don't think Jameis is any bigger, but again, you have to remember, in the book, that's just the middle of the book. There's a confrontation in the middle of the book. In this, they had to make it like there was actually a bigger confrontation, like, oh, this is this is Paul Atreides dying so that, he, you know, he can, he can become part of the Fremen and rebuild his identity and who he is. And it's just, it's so weird because the whole movie, like, again, that's the final conflict is him in a knife fight with a guy and he wins and a guy you just met. Yeah. A guy you just met. Who's, who's been told he's a pretty good fighter. He, they don't say he's the best fighter we have or anything like that. It's just Jameis is a pretty good fighter. You're probably going to (laughs) die. That's exactly how they introduced Jameis. Yeah. I wanted to make sure because I, I thought I maybe missed his introduction earlier, but yeah, you were, you were chop shop. Again, it's not rocket science, but, this material lends itself to a miniseries because you could have had Jameis being built up in the background of the earlier episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I even left it out because I think, I, I can't believe it. There needed to be an episode somewhere in there where we actually just take a break from everything that's going on with them. And it's just Duncan and him basically, damn, that was supposed to be eight episodes. Yeah, like towards the, you know, around episode four or five, it just needed to break away and have an entire episode where it was Duncan, uh, I don't want to say infiltrating, but basically becoming, you know, being welcomed into the Fremen community. And then that would have yeah, been a learning great... learning their culture. Yeah, exactly. And that would have been a great opportunity to introduce Jameis and have some idea of who he was. So again, when the battle happens between Paul and Jameis, there's actually some stakes there. Like maybe it's even, you know, Jameis is portrayed as a, as a pretty cool guy, or maybe he's a family man or something like that. Where when he dies, there's actually some impact as opposed to just like, yeah, it's just the next stepping stone for Paul. You know, that's it. Yeah, this guy that we just met is mad at Javier Bardem, and Javier Bardem's like, okay, well, yeah, y'all can fight, I guess. And Javier, he's he's so irritated. Come on, not again, Jameis. Like, let's kid, we don't have to do this right now. Like, let's just let's just get out of here. And it's just like, no, this is the law. I'm like. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah well, whatever. If those characters had some sort of backstory in the book, uh, possibly. So, like I said, it has been a very long time since I I read those books. But yeah, regardless, it doesn't land, mm-hmm. and your chop shop fixes a good portion of that. Yep. So, coming out of chop shop, this is normally where we would do our segment called Blue Book. Um, which is where I would give the price, the market value, or the price of the movie. Um, And then Travis would try and guess how much money this movie made while it was in the theaters. Um, Modern movies are hard because a lot of them, they deal with the streaming and you don't get an accurate idea of the money. So instead of doing that, where you try and guess the the U.S. box office and world box office, I'm just going to give you an opportunity. Do you want to guess how much this movie cost, estimated? knowing that they got every Uh, a-list actor they could possibly find to be in this movie how much do you think it cost man i'm i'm bad at this i'm gonna say without marketing 180 million so the estimated cost of 
Dene Villeneuve's 2021 Dene Villeneuve. Yeah. $165 million. And I truly believe that's pre-marketing. Uh, yeah, possibly. I don't know how, I mean, they didn't, I don't know how much marketing they did. I mean, granted, I don't watch TV, so I don't know. I mean, I saw, they can upload a trailer to YouTube and, you know, you'll get some organic traffic that way. But, um, yeah, it's, as of right now, you know, this is the opening weekend in the U.S. It's, it's opened a couple other places. Right now, it's, it's sitting at $129 million is what it's grossed. So it's it's almost made back, I guess, its estimated budget, but it I wouldn't call it profitable yet. So we'll see what happens. You know, obviously with these streaming movies, it it kind of it dilutes what the the gross is, but we'll see what happens. Well, I think that absolutely encourages a sequel to happen. I think that's bound to happen, but we'll, we'll probably talk about that at the end. Mhm. All right, so now let's jump into my favorite segment. Tag and title. So Travis, I'm going to give you three taglines. One of the taglines is going to be a tagline for this movie. One is going to be a tagline for a movie I find adjacent to this. And one is going to be a tagline I made up myself. What I need you to do is tell me what is the tagline for Dune 2021 version. Are Fear you ready? Is the mind killer. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Here we go. Arrakis holds the spice of life. Beyond fear, destiny awaits. Every generation has a legend. Every journey has a first step. Every saga has a beginning. That's Star Wars Episode One. You son of a bitch. <laughs> yes, that one is absolutely Star Wars Episode One. <laughs> I love that tagline for what it's worth. That's why I knew it instantly. <laughs> Damn it. All right, so now you're, bet you're between uh, Beyond Fear, Destiny Awaits, and Arrakis Holds the Spice of Life. You made up Arrakis Holds the Spice of Life because, again, that's too clever for this movie and most modern Hollywood. Leaving Beyond Fear, yada, 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 is the tagline for this movie. So, yes, Beyond Fear, Destiny Waits is the official tagline for the movie. I actually had Fear is the Mind Killer as my alternate, my tagline, but I was like, that's too easy. <laughs> I can't believe well, that's not I, the tagline. I would have guessed that that would have been the 2000 or the 1984 version. 1984s, I think, were all like, because I, I looked at those first, because you know me. Um, they were all like a paragraph long. Like, they're insane how long the um, <laughs> those taglines were. Yeah, uh, I, I still can't get over David Lynch making this movie in 1984. I, I haven't seen it, and... You know, our 12 listeners are probably rolling their eyes, but I can't imagine Lynch trying to do this shit. It is very, very weird. So the 2000 Dune tagline was discover the greatest treasure in the universe. And that's I think that was a miniseries, right? On um, yes, sci-fi. Yeah. yeah. So let me see if I can uh, I can get you some. Of course, the the David Lynch one's not even popping up in in the top of the the 
<laughs> requests here. God, what was what year was it? Nineteen eighty-four. Yeah, there we go. All right, because I like I said, I looked at these taglines and I was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> okay, they're all about. Okay, there's there there's two short ones. A place beyond your dreams, a movie beyond your imagination, a world beyond your experience, beyond your imagination. Were the were the short ones? All right. These. This is. <laughs> this is one of the other taglines. It is a world where sandworms, one thousand feet long, guard creation's greatest treasure, the spice that prolongs life and oh, enables the mind. It's. <laughs> dude, it's it's a full. There's three taglines that are a full paragraph long. I assume they just put the synopsis off the back of the DVD box. Like that cannot uh, yeah, be what that, a tagline was. I have to think that. So, alrighty, let's jump into our second to last segment, Time Capsule. Do you want to take it? So, Time Capsule is where we take an element of the movie. It might be an actor, it might be a director, it might be a composer, but we just contrast some of the other works that they've done against this movie or just even brought up their career outside of the movie we reviewed. I chose Charlotte Rampling. Uh, she plays the Reverend Mother in this movie, uh, the one who puts Paul through the box of pain. Do you recall? Mm-hmm. So I looked into some of her other film credits because I thought she did a great job of being an ominous presence. The costume design helped. You know, she was behind that veil. But I found two other movies she's done that I found interesting. Okay. 2008's Babylon A.D. starring Vin Diesel. I've not had the pleasure. Have you had the pleasure, Brett? Uh, I have not. All right. Eight years later, she did 2016's Assassin Creed. Did she play Assassin's a priestess? Creed, excuse me. What's that? Did she play a priestess? Yes, actually, yes. <laughs> Wow, so she is a little um, bit of a typecast. <laughs> she's a typecast. I also found it interesting that both of those movies were based upon pre-existing IP that desperately wanted to spawn a franchise. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't have to tell you, neither did. They certainly so did So I thought not. it was an interesting... If I'm that actress and I get the call from Denis Villeneuve and this is a prestigious movie... I'm also thinking I've tried this twice before. Hopefully this one takes off because I could use some residuals. Oh, I was thinking the so, opposite. Maybe she realizes that she's the kiss of death and she's like, I sorry, I can't do this. I want you to succeed. I'm actually a huge fan of Dune. I read the books when I was in school. <laughs> which funny enough, I think she crushes the small role that she has, but mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting. Like, like you said, she's uh, typecast into these sorts of movies. Yeah. Interesting. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's always, <laughs> you know, I like to go off the beaten path. It's always fun. So we'll go ahead and conclude our episode here. Travis, um, despite our review, I'd love to like, where, where do you land on this? Do you think it's worth the watch? Would you buy it when it came out? Where, where do you, what, what are your final thoughts? I think your mileage will vary 
depending on whether you're a fan of the source material. Um, I'm not. So this movie left me extremely lacking, especially considering it's directed by Denis Villeneuve. Um, that being said, though, I want to read the books now. I don't know that I will. But just the fact that this movie at least pushed me towards trying to get interested in the lore, I can't outright hate it. Because it's visually beautiful as well. So if you have a passing interest in Dune, I think you need to watch it. And maybe you'll have the reaction that I do. You know, pursue more Dune content. You just... A lot of people won't, so... You just got to get that books on tape. Recommend with specific get... circumstances. Yeah, you just got to get those books on tape. You know, just listen to it, and then you have to read it. That's fair. That's fair. But again, like I said, if it makes me have an interest in the source material, there's some level of success, and the technical expertise is chef's kiss. So that's my overall opinion. What about you? So, I have, I think, a interesting opinion on the movie. I was left very disappointed in the sense that I did want more, and I could not believe that they ended the movie where they did. Um, I, it, we talked about it earlier, like, it's it's a movie, so it needs to be encapsulated. And, and I don't know, it's interesting, because, like, you know, way back when with Star Wars, like, I think they were definitely some of the trendsetters of like, oh, when you when you have a trilogy movie, the second movie doesn't wrap up. Because, you know, I criticize this movie for, for not ending or having resolution, but technically The Empire Strikes Back was very similar in that. Like, the way that, that The Empire Strikes Back ends is Luke essentially finds out that he's the son of the villain, he gets his hand cut off, and their best friend is frozen in carbonite, and you have no idea where he is in the universe. And basically, they just look optimistically out into the into space for their next adventure. Like, they, they don't actually resolve really anything at the end of that movie. Even if we want to go back to A New Hope, the interesting thing is that movie didn't necessarily resolve the, the universes itself. They just wind up defeating Grand Moff Tarkin, who is in A New Hope, shown as the, the main baddie. Um, and they blow up the Death Star, but the Empire still exists at the end of A New Hope. And But I just think that the the conclusion in the final battle in A New Hope is more satisfying than what we got with the the battle between Jameis and, and Paul at the end of Dune. Um, and I think it did conclude at least that part of Luke Skywalker's hero journey. Um, and the reason I bring all that up is because at the end of the day, I honestly believe I'm going to go back and watch this movie like in the next couple of days. Like I, I did. It's odd for me to say I hated how it ended. And by, by the, when it did end, I was like, this was bullshit. But I want to go back and watch it again. And I don't know why. Like, I think it's one of those I'm hoping that if I go back and watch it again, the second viewing will reveal things that maybe I had a problem with. Like, oh, they actually did subtly mention this or they talked about this. And I just missed it while I was watching it the first time because um, it is beautifully and like you know from a technical standpoint it, it's a fantastic movie i just think story-wise it was such a bizarre choice to make a movie to put this much money and talent and star power behind it to end the movie in the middle of the hero's journey 
you know it just it literally just stops in the middle of a story like i can't imagine you know i made my books on tape joke like could you imagine if like you were able to get like you rent half of a book and like okay here's the book you can read it up until like or if like george r, r. martin released the next game of thrones book but he only re- released the first half of it like it'd be insane like like it's just that's a crazy model to go after so um long-winded i think it's worth watching um just know going into it that like when it ends you're you're gonna be like wait what because there's no there's no resolution there's no resolution in the movie whatsoever you watch two hours of a story unfold and then you're forced into an intermission well let me ask you because i didn't know going in that you were familiar with the source material we don't talk about that kind of stuff before the podcast but my opinion was if you're going to break this movie up should you end the first movie with duke leto being killed and paul and jessica being dumped out in the desert that felt like a more natural breaking point even if it comes too early, quote unquote, in the story, because it also would have allowed you to build up the villains of the movie, you know, have Batista kill someone of House of Atreides, you know, have Duke Leto being killed, like that that start moment be the way you end this first part. And I think you have to expand it to a trilogy at that point. But like you've already said, they want this to be Star Wars, so why not go with a three-act structure and do it that way? My assumption would be it with test audiences, like the general audience, or even not general audience. I, I don't consider us general audience and all that, but like would not have been satisfied with the movie ending that way. It's one thing if you do that in the middle of a trilogy because you've already established the characters in the first movie, so you're invested in them. To do that in the first movie, like I think would be kind of crazy because, again... Now you've you've essentially dumped them in the middle of the desert, but I don't necessarily care about them at this point in the journey. And that's why I still think even them trying to give some level of satisfaction by Paul defeating somebody at the end of the movie, I still think is crazy because it still did not give me a sense of I have you know, I, I ragged on Jason Momoa's Duncan early. Duncan's the only character I cared about in this movie, if I'm completely honest. And maybe Josh Brolin is Gurney, but that's because I love Josh Brolin. It had nothing to do with his actual character. Um, and that's a lot of, like, the weird part of this movie is, like, I cared about things because of who played the character as opposed to the character actually being established as someone who I was invested in. Because at the point where Paul and Jessica had been adopted by the Fremen at the end, I did not care about them. I honestly cared more about uh, Javier Bardone's character than I did theirs. Yeah, agreed. The fact that he's been usurped by this guy who has now been killed by Paul, he's kind of lost all of his standing within the Freeman. At least that's the way I interpret it, but... Yeah, I don't know. I, I understand that my ending would be much more Empire Strikes Back, but it would at least utilize the death of Oscar Isaac's great performance as a jumping off point to the next movie. And I think you could have, if you had focused on a shorter span of time in the novel, you could have expanded some of the things that we needed and then leave on a much more natural ending point, uh, which would lead to two more movies. But again, ultimately, yeah. 
just do it as a fucking eight episode mini series on HBO. It's mm-hmm. dumb that they didn't. That's the review. Yeah, there. I, I'm just thinking it in my my closing remarks is I can only think of one character who actually had an arc in this movie. And do you know who I'm gonna say it is? I'm dying to know. It's the champion of change, or whatever her name or whatever her title was, she's the only one who has any arc. She basically starts off as a stooge for the Emperor. She doesn't necessarily believe in Paul or anything. She winds up basically being a servant to them and then winds up changing her mind She and sacrificing herself for the greater good. And she gets a conclusion when she basically defeats her attackers at the end. Like To me, she's the only one who had any, any level of, yes. of character yes. arc in the entire movie. And it ends in her death, but at the same time, it still ends in her her revelation that she's going to die for something larger, that the Emperor and the, the Imperium is not, you know, what she believes in. She is, you know, her identity is a, is a Fremen, and that she is going to do what she can to, to put Paul in a position to take down the Imperium. Like, she's the only one who goes through any kind of, of change to me. Even Paul, at the end, when he defeats him, he still felt like the same Paul. A hundred percent agreed, and it's amazing because I didn't even mention it. We didn't mention it because it her storyline gets such short attention. But yeah, it's the only character that I feel like had any sort of dramatic arc. So yeah, hundred percent agreed. And honestly, when she gets stabbed from behind, that's probably the only character again duncan because i jason mobile she's the only one where i was like when she gets stabbed and you see it's not even blood her water shoot up i'm like oh man like i did not like i actually felt bad for her even leto i don't know if i felt bad for him dying and that might come back to the whole point of him being like he knew he set his family up to die he knew what he was doing as opposed to she was just doing the right thing and wound up sacrificing herself um for what she believed to be the greater good yeah, she's just a character who got more information and changed her mind, which, to me, that's the definition of being a human being. So, yeah. Small screen time, but, yeah, that's the that's character arc. That's the only character arc. Because yep. the others, you know, watch the sequel, read the book. You're going to love the source material. I'll listen to it on audio tape. Alrighty, with that said, you know, I think that concludes this episode of Dune. I want to go ahead and give a shout out. This was, you know, a, a bonus episode. So um, if you're listening to this, we also released Gothica at the same time, which concluded our, uh, was it, seasonally obligated Halloween horror trilogy. So you can also check that out. Um, and then we will be back next week with another trilogy. Was it like Art Heist? I forget what exactly we called it. But uh, yeah. We'll have more information with that next week. Yeah, watch the sequel. Listen to the sequel. You'll get more information. Uh, but Brett, uh huh. I did want to say, as we sign off, goodbye, young human. I hope you live. You take oh, it. You, I'll, I'll take. Yeah. Okay. All right. Edit this shit, Brad, and don't put it at the end of the fucking podcast. <clears throat> Jesus.
I'm a huge fan. <clears throat> Good lord. You okay? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you okay? I thought I was muted. The Emperor fears a shift of power is taking place across the Imperium and Princess God damn it. Yeah, it's it's already this is I know what's going at the end of this fucking episode. Okay. 